Welcome back, Warriors, Tansei, Sego, Ani Buju, Quay, Nin Deluisi, Pampometer, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, but at the same time, revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and practices. And it's also very much about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And I know that right now we have a lot to deal with, trying to keep our families, clans, houses, villages, and nations healthy and safe, during this COVID-19 pandemic. And I see so many of our sovereign Native nations going above and beyond to not only try to keep the virus out of our communities, but also putting in place protective mechanisms to provide for our people. Sadly, many companies that are part of the extractive industry, like oil, gas, and mining, for example, have continued on with their work in our territories. And their work, poses a great risk to our peoples, our lands, and our waters, but also our health resources during the pandemic. And today we are so lucky to have with us a woman that I consider a Native warrior hero in my mind. She has been defending our lands and waters and peoples on the front lines for a very long time, and there are so many of us that look up to her and try to emulate what she does. Tara Hauska is Anishinaabe from Kuchiching First Nation in Ontario, but she currently lives in the United States and works as a tribal attorney. She was also the former advisor to presidential candidate Bernie Sanders on Native American affairs, and she has won so many awards. She's been in so much media. She's a public speaker. She's literally everywhere. And she is with us today to talk about her time on the front lines, fighting against the Dakota Access Pipeline and her current work against Enbridge's Line 3. She is truly a Native woman warrior, and I so much look up to her. Welcome to the show, Tara. How good you, Pam, and I, uh, likewise, I look up to you a great deal, so I'm so honored to be here with you. Well, I can't, I can't thank you enough for being here because I know all of the youth and activists and allies that listen to this podcast are going to absorb everything that you have to say. And I think before we get started, maybe you could introduce yourself the way you like to do it. Buju Indidawe Maganaduk, Minoa Ginua, Chabawekwe Indijanakaz, Makwa Indudame, Kojuching Indunjaba. My name is Tara Hauska. I'm Bear Clan from uh, Kuchiching First Nation, which is right on the border of Ontario, Minnesota. There's like this big lake that separates the, the two. I was actually born on the other side of the lake, so I'm Minnesotan and uh, so-called American. But mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> I grew up on the other side of a border, which happened to be like through the middle of a lake. Um, so it's great to be on a on a podcast with our with my First Nations relatives. <laughs> and it's so weird because it's this weird arbitrary border anyway. It's like a turtle island in all of our territories. And, to, you know, to, to have to describe yourself as Native American or Native Canadian or, you know, all of these kinds of colonial, you know, ideas. But ultimately, this is all of our territory, border or not. So uh, I've been watching you for a long time. I mean, clearly you're, you know, you're not just someone who talks a 
good talk. You're also on the front lines. You're also taking action. You're doing what you can to make a difference. And I'm wondering if you can, you know, tell our listeners what influenced you growing up to have such a strong commitment to defending our native lands and our sovereignty and our waters and really, you know, about standing up and taking action. So growing up, that place, the, the big lake I'm talking about with the international waters in the middle, which is a strange thing. I grew up in a place that's really, uh, really um, beautiful. So hunting and fishing and, and doing all the things that uh, have a deep connection with the land. But I grew up in a, in a situation where I actually had a um, Norwegian stepfather and my mom is pretty disconnected from her own tribal people. So I had quite a few native ties, I guess, growing up just in the sense of like my cousins and aunties and uncles and things like that that were around and going to family reunions. But I wasn't raised in a, in a way that was really tightly connected to a lot of these issues and didn't know anything about sovereignty, didn't really know anything about the current state of affairs with Indian people, with native people. And you certainly don't learn that in school, right? So the mm-hmm. educational system is so lacking when it comes to teaching about our communities and you know you don't learn anything we didn't even learn anything about the tribes that were around us right and like whose land we were on which was my people's land in that in that particular instance and so by the time I went to college you know I thought that I wanted to do um, medical studies and go to um, medical school and do all those things and so I kind of went that route Um, I had a really hard time when I went to school suffered quite a bit of trauma and was very, very angry. And I didn't understand, I knew where some of it came from, but I didn't understand like this kind of deep lack of connection. I think that that was really inside and really, um, I think it leads to a lot of native people feeling, at least in that situation, just feeling so upset uh, with the world and not understanding why. I started studying Ojibwe language when I was in, in college. I was lucky enough to have that opportunity. And through that, connected to um, uh, a teacher who actually happens to be one community over from mine. He's from uh, Nigigusa Minikaning, uh, Dennis Pabominis Jones. And so started going to Sweat Lodge, started going to um, going out to fast. I got my Indian name and did those things. And that basically kind of rerouted my entire track of my life. Felt so finally kind of like this, this, this confusion and anger was kind of subsiding in a real way that substances and things like that were not able to do. And so uh, I tried to go to, I wanted to go to med school. Then I learned about all the insurance stuff that happens in the United States. And I was like, oh my goodness, I can't (laughs) possibly begin to do that. And my partner at the time was like, well, what are you going to do? And I was, I didn't know. And he, he asked me, is law school, maybe you could do that. And I was like, all right, maybe I can do that. And so I went (laughs) into law school, having no clue what law school was at all took LSAT for dummies like I mean we're talking like I had no clue what lawyers did I've never (laughs) even seen law and order oh Um, wow yeah no you know and so I you know thought I would do patent law because it was like the only science-based kind of law and you have to have a science background to do it but then I started working in the Indian child welfare law clinic through the school and saw direct directly firsthand the state tearing apart Indian families and the state invading Indian life to such an extent that you'd see these native children that were being separated from their, their tribes, from their culture, from their people um, who wanted them, you know, and for me as a person who grew up wanting that so badly and not really knowing what I, what I was seeking, 
mm-hmm. it just um it affected me so deeply to see that kind of disparate treatment of native families and the i mean here in minnesota the the rate of native children versus non-native children being taken out of home is 17 to 1 so it, it's extreme you know that this ongoing assault on native families and the fact that the indian child welfare act itself is constantly constantly under assault by um for-profit industries by adoption industries that want to that want our children and so yeah ended up just kind of changing focuses entirely and went out to washington dc to work at a tribe representing native nations all over the country and once i realized once i reached that point i um saw the the washington redskins in in season for the first time because oh I had wow really, i had i had interned in dc before that i had worked at the white house and i had worked at um a, a native law firm in the summertime but didn't experience that and so i didn't really understand it until i was there and i was like oh my goodness this is so awful and how it must feel to be a native person here and like a native child growing up here and that partnered with going on to the Capitol Hill and seeing how horribly and disrespectfully and misunderstood Native people were treated um, in real things and real numbers and real programs and um, regulations and laws that just do not fulfill the the treaty obligations that this country and Canada also has with, with First Nations and Native people started going to protests. I didn't go to a protest until 2014. So it was a very fast <laughs> I guess, um, realization of, of what, what's happening, what's really happening. But, but what a background to have. I mean, to want to, you know, start out in medicine and then, well, looks like it's going to be law school. And then all of the things that you learn, it's, it's almost like that path was unraveling before you without it being directed by you. And I, I can't imagine a worse crash course in colonization than working at the Indian Child Welfare Clinic, where you see exactly the kind of violence and trauma that continues. It's not, you know, often universities, if they teach it at all, it's very much historicized. Here's what's happened in the past. But Indian Child Welfare is like, here's colonization ongoing and... And I, I can't imagine the, the impact it must have had on you. And clearly, you're such a strong warrior now. Um, it had a significant impact. And then you went on and, and got your law degree and to have interned at the White House. That's pretty amazing. What was that like? <laughs> I mean, that was a uh, experience where it was under the Obama administration. Oh, okay. Fortunately, I got the opportunity to work on something that actually uh i think it was a a a blessing to be in the right place at the right time but it was also a moment where i kind of really saw firsthand how having our advocates and having our people in certain rooms and at at these tables where decisions are being made is so important Mm -hmm. um i got i got the opportunity just in that one summer to work on something called the the hearth act it basically um in U.S. federally recognized tribes as it stands right now, or as it, as it, as it was then, um, they were not able to manage leases of land. So there's like federal trust land and they were not able to like, like so business leases, home leases, you know, mm-hmm. any type of leasing of land, which 
in turn, you know, leads to it's really, really hard to get a bank loan when you're going to say, okay, well, we're going to try to get this lease, but the federal government has oversight. So it's going to take about maybe eight to 10 years and, you know, just stay on the line because we're going to do our best. It makes it really, really, really hard to develop land when you don't have access to that really basic form of land management, right? And so this act expands that there was a couple tribes that had the authority to do that, but it expands it to all of every federally recognized tribe that passes through a certain regulatory process. The agency that I worked at that was the um, is the White House Council on Environmental Quality. They had actually been opposed to the bill um, for quite some time because there was environmental in their view. It, it rolled back environmental regulation because it would take it out of the federal government's hands and put it into tribes hands. And so I get pulled in this high level meeting pretty early on in the internship and the chair is sitting there. I'm listening to all these people talking about native people in this way that was so um, paternalistic and uninformed, deep concerns that tribes can't manage this. And it's they're going to roll back all this environmental protection and like we need oversight because they can't handle it, you know, and just really awful kind of verbiage being used. Um and the chair asked, like, the, I'm sitting in the room and the chair was like, okay, well, maybe you could take a look at this. You know, and she looks at me and she's like, maybe you could present a different view and you could educate all of us about a different perspective about tribal sovereignty. And, you know, maybe maybe we could work on that a little bit so I can get a, a fuller picture. And so I did that for, I think, like, maybe almost most of my internship where I was educating our department and my bosses and then their bosses and then their bosses about the basics of tribal jurisdiction and sovereignty and really basic concepts. And they ultimately ended up adopting that position and passed it through their agency. And that bill then became law later in that fall. Wow. And I was just one person, right? And so, and it was also like a, a realization of like how many advocates there were throughout too, because I was working with people from Indian people in Department of the Interior. I was working with Indian people in Department of Justice and all these different agencies that were all trying so hard to get this one piece through that piece of legislation through that had so many um, potential goods for Native people. And so it was really eye-opening to develop that network and to see how all these different people work together to, to make differences back home. That's invaluable experience too. I mean, what happens on the outside is one thing, but how it all works on the inside to know pressure points and lever points and where our voices are needed. All of that is rare and useful information to have in Canada or the U.S. For sure. I will say it's also, I think I had a perspective of Washington, D.C. before I came mm-hmm. in to really work there. That was, I thought that I mean, I didn't have rose-colored glasses in the sense of, like, legislators were, like, these amazing people and, you know, (laughs) like, incredible. But I did think that there was basic kind of, like, decorum and general information about a lot of different issues, right? And that, frankly, depending on who it was, there was instances where that was not the case at all, where there was favoritism or, um, Mm -hmm. like, a lot of kind of like prior hurt so i'm not going to sign your piece of legislation because you didn't sign mine 10 years ago when this is right we're talking about legislation that like impacts millions of people right so yeah yeah. that was quite shocking to me um to see that and also to understand too that legislators are under this enormous amount of pressure to continue to fundraise as a, a big bulk of what they do almost every day that they have to pay you know party dues and they have to work on their campaigns and 
that a lot of decisions are actually um, being made in, in a very quick, fast pace by young interns and by staffers and senior staffers and thinking about like how important it is to develop relationships with different offices and their staff. And so, you know, having that kind of experience, you know, and applying that on the outside and being able to advise tribal governments and, you know, activist organizations and things like that on the inner workings of government and legislation and policy and, and government pressure and things like that, that's, you know, that's really useful information to have um, because our advocacy is everywhere. It's on the ground, but it's also in politics, it's in law, it's in, it's all over, the, even internationally. So that's, that's really incredible experience. Well, thanks. So that's a really great background that you have and that you bring to, you know, your activism, your advisory work, everything that you do. And, and one of the things that really, um, when I really first noticed how much work that you were doing was during the Dakota Access Pipeline. And, you know, a, a lot of our listeners will be familiar with the Dakota Access Pipeline, but some of of my listeners are Indigenous peoples from uh, other countries. And so I'm wondering if you can give our listeners a bit of a chronology about what was the issue in Standing Rock Sioux Nation with the Dakota Access Pipeline, and then tell us a bit about your involvement. What happened? Standard process of infrastructure projects. So infrastructure being, in this case, a um, pipeline, an oil pipeline. Mm -hmm. um, there is a regulatory review process that will happen and they will determine whether or not they need to do an environmental assessment or an environmental impact statement. There are two different levels of review. The EA, quote unquote, is a very uh, quick, low level review. An environmental impact statement is a full on, you're going to do the full analysis of cultural properties of um, aesthetic impacts, environmental impacts, cumulative impacts, all these different um, considerations that need to be had in order to receive the permits that a company is applying for. In the Dakota Access Pipeline situation, um, essentially what had happened was the tribe, in, in, this, in this instance, the Standing Rock Sioux tribe, had been notified about the um, seeking of permits for the Dakota Access Pipeline project from um, the you know, from the federal government, mm -hmm. they, they said no. They very unequivocally said no many, many, many times in the process. Um, and in the U.S. side of things, there is something called tribal consultation. That tends to be the standard in a lot of westernized countries, which is very, very unfortunate. Consultation obviously is not consent. Mm -hmm. um, although the international standard is consent in many, many um, localities like the United States, like Canada, like Australia, different different places that have um, ind large indigenous populations, consultation continues to be the standard. So they came out to consult in, in their assessment. Standing Rock Street Tribe obviously did not feel that it was consulted adequately um, mm -hmm. because their answer was no. And that, you know, a, a number of meetings with some staffers or low-level folks is not enough to justify, like, yeah. uh, consultation, right? Like, that's oftentimes what the federal government will do. Essentially, they had argued all the way through that process. There was an, they decided that they were going to do an environmental assessment, not a full environmental impact statement. And so, at the same time, this encampment had started to form a very small encampment called Sacred Stone in about, I'd say, April of, of 2016. 
And uh, I was, I had just recently agreed to come on to Honor the Earth. It's an environmental NGO based here in the States that's led by uh, Winona LeDuc, uh, indigenous woman from the same territory as myself. Uh, but she's from White Earth. I'm from further north. And so Honor, I knew about it because Honor the Earth had been sending them kind of like, you know, some, some small support things here and there because a small encampment had popped up like many other um you know, small efforts across Indian country, people are always trying to, you know, keep track of who needs help where. Right? Yeah. There's always front lines all over the place. Yeah. Um, but then the, the the Dakota Access Pipeline fight received kind of this large boost when it, the youth kind of uh, were, had received this media grant to elevate the struggle of Dakota Access Pipeline. And they we're doing it in a real it was called something called respect our water and they had the support of a few celebrities like shaylen woodley and others and they decided that they were going to run and they were going to take their fight from they had done a small run um within the state of north dakota but they chose that they were going to they were actually going to run all the way to washington dc wow we're going to document themselves doing this these these young kids coming from the res we're going to run all the way thousands of miles to washington dc to take their fight to the to the federal government and so it was it was really beautiful to see that and and as i was i was still in washington dc at that point i had just finished my job working with bernie sanders because he had withdrawn from the campaign um from his presidential campaign and um was kind of like, you know, deciding what I was going to do next. I was a kind of DC arm, I guess, of Honor the Earth at that point. Mm -hmm. um, the runners started coming out and then they, they got to DC. And then when they got to DC, it was like they were there. And I was like surrounded with all these really amazing youth advocates that were bringing this fight all the way from North Dakota. And then at that same time, like they had this this call went up because Facebook Live was was new at that time. So Facebook Live was a brand new platform. And I saw this woman, LaDonna Allard. Um, she's the one of the co-founders of Sacred, Sacred Stone Camp. Um, plea for help on Facebook, like asking people come and stand with us because they're not they're here. You know, they're 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 here right now. Please come uh -huh. and stand. And then I saw these videos popping up of horses in a line against police officers that were trying to you know uh mark off sites for this pipeline to be trenched into the ground and i basically just packed up what i had i rented a car because i didn't even have a car and drove all the way from dc to north dakota not really knowing where i was i, I thought maybe i'd be there for a couple weeks and i ended up being there for like six months oh my um, goodness yeah it was <laughs> It was not necessarily, for me, it wasn't a planned thing. I thought that when I went out that I would try to, because I had been following the court case really carefully too, because obviously at, at that point there had been a lawsuit filed mm -hmm. um, about the, you know, pushing for an environmental impact statement, the full environmental review. Um, and I thought maybe there might be a need for another tribal lawyer to bring a different perspective because I knew that Earth Justice was leading the, the complaint. That's what I originally thought I was going out there for, but I ended up doing something very different. <laughs> <laughs> So, and what was it? What what did you go out there and do? Well, I kind of uh, I, so when I got there, you know, it's a bunch of teepees in a field, right, and like some <laughs> tents, a few tents yeah. here and there. Because um, I didn't go to Sacred Stone Camp, I actually went to something that what was then called the Overflow Camp. And Winona, my uh, you know, my fellow fellow colleague at uh, 
and and auntie and mentor at honor the earth was like okay well if you're gonna go out here you gotta you gotta talk to the women and figure out where you're gonna go right mm-hmm. and so she introduced me to to one of the elders who was there and um i ended up working really closely with that elder for a long time and then i also went to you know talk with LaDonna Allard this woman who had not only inspired me but I who I sort of knew um and a few other women of the of the territory to kind of you know figure out like what do you what should I what should I be doing when I'm here um and very quickly got a lot of you know this is what I need you to do and I need to do this and like all these things and I kind of fell into this role of um being part of this this camp called the the Red Warrior Camp and Without giving away too much information, yeah, I would yeah. say that, um, you know, we were a, a direct action camp with a lot of uh, very skilled people who had a lot of background and experience and specifically land defense work. Right. Um, I myself did not actually really have any land defense work before I came out there because I had been doing urban actions, right, based in right. D.C. and doing online stuff with the Washington football team, you know, hashtagging not your mascot and doing kind of marches and things like that i had helped organize some large-scale mobilizations in in minnesota but i had never done specifically land defense but that said i had a lot of you know organizing ties nationally and you know obviously have had some quite a bit of press experience at this point and so i came as a as a person to just you know direct me into into what's most helpful and that's what i ended up doing for all those months wow and then I mean, Dakota Access, Standing Rock Sioux Nation and all of the nations and activists that went there to help. I mean, it was it was something to witness the amount of attention and public education and support and the international attention that Dakota Access Pipeline got. I mean, it's it'll probably go down in history as as one of the biggest. I mean, we would see. I mean, I wasn't there, um, but we would see on TV or on YouTube or on Facebook videos of nation after nation entering into one of the camps and them being welcomed and, you know, the kind of support that was being pledged by by so many people. And it, it was just something to see. And, and everyone had like a lot of hope. Um, especially when President Obama had made some comments in relation to, you know, maybe slowing things down a bit. So, uh, but it, it didn't. It didn't seem to turn out that way in the end because uh, obviously there's a change in administration. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what was the difference under the Obama administration versus the Trump administration in terms of specifically the Dakota Access Pipeline issue? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think this is a, this is something where as a, as a native person that's operating within this, you know, two-party mm-hmm. system in the United States of Republicans and Democrats, I think there's a, a want to try to paint them as two very different actors but in in reality when it comes to certain issues i think that they are a lot more closely aligned than than one wants to believe you know in the in the instance of president obama and his administration with the way that he handled the dakota access pipeline there was total silence from the administration even after hillary clinton lost the election um hillary clinton is a supporter of fracked gas and fracked oil as a quote-unquote bridge fuel and i had suspected that that was the reason that um obama stayed out of the mix right like i thought it was because he was trying to do his best to support hillary clinton and her campaign 
so she could be so she could beat Donald Trump. That's what I thought was happening. But then the election came, the election went, and he was still silent. His administration still did not do anything as um, women, children, unarmed people, indigenous people, non-indigenous people, but still at the heart of it, all unarmed people were standing against mil- heavily, heavily militarized um, law enforcement and private security who were, I mean, the amount of violence that was being enacted on our people during the months of November and December was it was quite frightening. I mean, we were at the point where I, I honestly thought someone might lose their life based on what was happening. I mean, there had been a, wo- a young woman who had almost lost her arm from a concussion grenade. Yeah. Um, her case is still ongoing. That's Sophia Walansky. Um, there have been, you know, I, I still, Marcus Mitchell is a water protector who was blinded in one eye. Um, I mean, we're talking about serious harm to people that was being done and no answer from the federal government. And so it wasn't until the um, veterans, all of these veterans came to Standing Rock in this large display, you know, and, and by this time the, the, the mainstream media had finally showed up. Yeah. You know, they had been quiet for pretty much the entire struggle. Yeah. Um, the mainstream media in my assessment is very, um, very lax when it comes to the environment and when it comes to reporting on the environment. And I suspect that's probably a lot to do with who is actually paying yep. the paying the bills at those institutions? Exactly. But by the time they showed up, you know there was a lot of people there, and CNN was there, and New York Times was there, and ABC, NBC, CBS, you know, all these big CBC, all these huge um, media attention was was there. And when that happened, all of a sudden you get this issue from, you get this announcement from the Obama administration that they're going to order the environmental impact statement. And at that point, we knew that the Trump administration was coming in. Mm -hmm. And so it really wasn't, you know, it really wasn't a win in the sense that, yes, we had pushed and pushed and pushed for all of this pressure to get the environmental impact statement, but it wasn't issued until they knew that a new administration was coming in. And one of the first things Trump did when he was in office was reinstitute the Dakota Access Pipeline. You know, so I I would say that between the two administrations, you know, the Obama administration did a lot of work when it came to Native youth, when it came to Native education and specific programming for um, contract support costs in Indian Health Service and some other you know, programming, but when it came down to specifically the environment and, and consultation and all that, it, it just wasn't, it wasn't there in, in a way that it could have been. And I met Obama after that happened. I met him in 20, 2017 and, you know, I got to ask him directly because I had worked for him, you know, and I, I think, you know, at first he was really excited to hear that I worked for him. And then I asked him directly, you know, you stayed quiet when we were all being attacked in North Dakota and when women and children were being tear gassed and maced and thrown into dog kennels. I was put into a dog kennel when I was arrested, you know, and at that point he wasn't sitting in office anymore. So I just asked him, you know, like, what is your position on what your, what your foundation, the Obama foundation is going to do when it comes to tribal sovereignty and when it comes to standing Mm -hmm. with our people in a real way, you know, and that was the question. And he gave me a political response, which was not surprising, but I think that we have to be um, quite cautious when it comes to putting our, our, our hope and our, our faith into just one advocacy stream. Oh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so glad you said that because you have 
so much experience in, you know, US politics and you're there and you know what's happening and for, you know, people in other countries, even just Canada, you know, you think, well, maybe there's a big difference between these parties and there, you know, there probably are in some policy areas, but it's like here in Canada. I mean, you know, um, Justin Trudeau wrote in on this like massive wave when he was first elected that, you know, he was literally going to be the opposite of conservative prime minister, you know, Stephen Harper, we had the liberals come in and they were promising, oh, we're going to respect native rights. We're even going to respect your right to veto, to say no to things happening on your land. And, you know, from other countries looking in would have said, wow, look, you know, there's this massive difference between the conservatives and the liberals in terms of respecting native rights and land rights. But ultimately, he, I mean, he bought a pipeline for I know. Like and so, you know, it's, it's really hard when, when we are trying to do international public education to say, okay, look, yeah, there, there's some small differences that, you know, some improvements, but ultimately on the fundamentals of our sovereignty, our treaty rights and our lands, all governments seem to act the same regardless of the party. Right. And I think it, it puts, it creates, um, you know, fractionation within native nations. And I yes. think, you know, we've, we've definitely seen that finally as, as sad as it, as it is play out on a national scale when it comes to the Wet'suwet'en people and the difference between tra- traditional hereditary leadership mm-hmm. versus an elected band council. You know, I think there is, um, you know, in my perspective of, of representing different nations around the around the country, but then also working with native people, which are, you know, not the same. Those are those are not exactly the same things um, because there's different obligations and there's different um, outcomes being sought. Right. Like, so yeah. if you're part of band council or if you're part of a tribal council, you're in a relationship with the federal government and you're in a relationship to try to get your people programming and healthcare and education and to try to make sure that you are, you know, your, your land is in trust and that you're Mm -hmm. working on economic development and that you're, you're working for the betterment of your people. Right. Versus within, you know, there's different interests that are at stake, right? Like there's, there's interests in, um, you know, sovereignty that's not defined by a colonial government. Mm-hmm. sovereignty that is inherent to us sovereignty that is what makes up a native nation what makes up a what makes up a people which is you know in my assessment it's kinship culture language you know these these things that we share together like that's yeah. what makes up a people and that's what makes a distinct people is is those things those um unique practices and and perspectives and life ways and kinships to each other you know and those and those two things are are oftentimes at odds with each other. And I think that can be a really hard thing um, when you're trying to figure out what you're like, I was, I just did an interview the other day about with this native person who's a reporter looking to try to do an article on sovereignty. Mm-hmm. How do we define sovereignty? You know, and those are really hard questions, especially now living in the 21st century and where we're at as native people. Those are very, very difficult questions, and it's made even more so by these um, outwardly seeming positive governments like a Justin Trudeau who's, yeah. you know, gifted headdresses and is welcomed into oh my native spaces. And First Nations are, 
reading him hoping, you know what I mean? And I understand that too, because yep. I understand the hope. You want to hope that somebody's going to do something better than yep. the person before them. And you want to hope that someone's going to maybe actually fulfill the treaty obligations that are, that were signed to create the country that they're now in charge of. You know, you want to believe that and continue to hope that for your children and for your grandchildren. But yeah, now he's, he bought a pipeline. I mean, that, <laughs> that sits entirely at odds with that, you know, hope, right. It's here's the reality when it really, when the, when it really, really hit the, you know, the bottom line, right. Yep. Because a lot of them are operating in, in enormous pressure with themselves with um, the one percenters that have deep, deep, deep level ties within our governance systems, within oh, yeah. the colonial governance systems, especially. Oh, I, well, exactly. And, you know, it's, it's amazing that our warriors are able to persist in the face of, you know, colonization and ongoing genocide, first of all. So just be, you know, trying to navigate that minefield. But then, you know, the fraction, you know, the fractionation that you were talking about, you know, you've got colonial systems of bands and tribes versus, you know, traditional. And it's very much presented that way as a versus as opposed to, you know, working, trying to work it out together. But then there's also the fractionization of just the politics. I mean, Native peoples sometimes get so involved in colonial politics, like Republican and, and Democrat and liberal and conservative and will be, you know, viciously liberal or viciously <laughs> conservative and forget about, you know, or it appears like sometimes they forget about, you know, the, the nation that they come from and that that that's somebody else's politics. And while, you know, it's important to advocate in all different spaces, to not lose sight of, of who we are ultimately for the sake of, you know, that kind of politics. So we get fractionated that way and then, you know, don't even talk about provincial or state politics and everything else that's going on. So it's, it's quite a minefield and, you know, to try to navigate that. Um, the one thing I find like really hopeful about all of the resistance on the ground and resistance in urban areas, just the resistance movement in general is, is that we work despite all of that stuff, you know, um, you work around it, you find ways of, of keeping people, you know, trying to keep people unified and be strategic while all of that other stuff is going on. And, you know, with Dakota Access Pipeline, I mean, that's, some people will look at that and say, oh, but they weren't able to stop the pipeline. But I see it as, look at what they were able to accomplish. How many tribes and nations we brought together, how much awareness, how many allies, the movement that it creates. And just because you can't see it, it's kind of like Idle No More. People think Idle No More is dead because we're still not, you know, dancing in the streets. But all of that just goes behind the scenes and, you know, empowers nations at the grassroots level and we're still operating just in different ways. And so I'm wondering, like, can you share with us, like, what happened? So everything happened at Dakota Access or at Standing Rock Sioux Nation. You know, you had all of this horrendous violence. You had change in administration. And ultimately, what happened with the pipeline? Ultimately, the pipeline was built and a lot of people left with a lot of trauma. I mean, that is, mm. that's the, 
there are many beautiful things that came from that fight. The, the things that you mentioned of mm. raising awareness and realizing that we could lead and demonstrate what a indigenous led resistance could, could be, you know, that yeah. we could, that we actually do have the power to pull 10,000 people into Cannonball, North Dakota, this tiny, tiny community in the prairie you know, that, that most people had never heard of. I had never heard of Cannonball, North Dakota before I really <laughs> went there, you know, and that we could create a movement that eclipsed so many other environmental struggles that had been largely led by these very well-funded, very well-established um, kind of like, you know, uh, the old boys, the old school club of, of quote-unquote green NGOs, um, of, of nonprofits who had a lot of uh, infrastructure. Instead, mm-hmm. you have the people who are, you know, among some of the most oppressed people, the the forgotten people who are still here, uh, coming together and 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 leading this. Right, like that is so mm-hmm. beautiful and powerful on in and of itself. The yeah. fact that the world got to see Native people and 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 realize, oh my goodness, they're still being treated so horribly. <laughs> you know, like this is still <laughs> happening. Like that was something that was shocking to me. Like afterwards, when I when I was going and we were doing a lot of banking work, right? We I still do a lot of finance work, talking to the people that are funding these projects. They are still so many of them were were just shocked at the fact that we were treated like this by the by the United States or by Canada. Like they do not know that. They don't know that. They think that everything is for the most part okay. Like they know the treaties got broken, but like that it's all good now, right? Yeah. And that is not the case at all. However, I would also say like as Native people, there's a different side to it. And that's the part that I think a lot of us are still healing from. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that we are healing from this this incredible loss that happened and the seeing the fractionation and the, the kind of ongoing healing that's happening among ourselves. You know, you, you touched upon navigating these minefields as native people and i think that's it's very very true right like it's it's hard to be in a in a place like uh you know um in the white house for instance or something like that and and remember who you are and hold on to that and not get caught up in well if i just do this thing and i and i and i keep excelling this way like this is the way it's done you know, mm-hmm. like, or this is, this is how we have to do things. And all of a sudden you're not sitting on the same side as your people. You're sitting across, the, across the table from them. You know, like that's not, that's not a, something that I look down on in the sense that I understand that is very, yeah. very hard to navigate those systems. And it can be like, we're surrounded on all sides. We live in a colonized world, right? Like that's yep. the reality of it. We're talking on a, on a cell phone or I'm, I'm talking on my cell phone right now, you know, and yep we're talking over a, a platform that allows us to share a message, but it's obviously one that's um, got a lot of angles and um, yep. downsides as well. Yeah. But, you know, trying to figure out how do we hold on to ourselves in that, in that place. And I, I think that, um, you know, the, the traditional people and the, particularly the, the traditional ways that we have as, as indigenous people are so strong and they are um, something that has enabled me to continue on with the work I do. Um, you know, when I was out in DC, I would try to get home as much as possible to kind of, you know, recharge, basically like recharge the oh battery. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 
and it was the same with, you know, when I was working in the Indian Child Welfare Law Center and seeing all this really hurt trauma and then, you know, speaking with my own grandmother about her experience in um, boarding schools and my teacher with his experience in residential schools and like all these different things that were kind of unfolding. It was okay, well, but we return to the land and we return to, to ourselves, right, into who we really are as people, because that strength that's inside of us is something that has kept us through generations, thousands and thousands of generations. Yeah, and, and, and you're an example of just how powerful connecting or reconnecting or strengthening our connections with our culture and our practices really are, because there's, I mean, we're all colonized and it doesn't matter how traditional we are. It doesn't matter where we live, what we do. We're all colonized. We're navigating a colonial system. And many of our people have been lost or stolen through child welfare or 60s scoop or um, there's a whole different, you know, a whole gambit of colonial laws and policies that have excluded people from our communities and being disconnected. But our ways are so powerful that you can always still connect, whether it's at 10 years old, you just start to connect, whether it's at 20, whether it's at 40, like our ways are so powerful. And it's that it's, it's, it's there for people, we just have to, we you know, we still have to struggle to find ways to connect and the people through whom to connect and, um, you know, navigate the minefield of trauma and disconnection and all of those things and so you just you know you're you're a really good example for youth who may be feeling because they grew up in foster care that they feel disconnected that they didn't have a link to their communities or they don't know their um, practices that now they they can go and and seek that out and it's never too late it's never too late and there's a real power in reconnecting it is never ever too late and you know, there you're going to run into or you probably will like the most likely thing. I've run into plenty of hurdles in that time. Oh, yeah. Right? Like you're going to run into people that are traumatized, too, because they are we have experienced a great deal of trauma. Right. And I think in a lot of instances, we unfortunately also enact that trauma on one another. Yeah. And so you're you might get turned away. You might get turned away multiple times and you might, you know, run into people who are you know, saying these awful things to you or you don't belong or whatever it happens to be, but that I would, I would strongly encourage folks to not give up, yep. right. And to keep, keep working at it because you're going to find that way. And then when you find that way in to yourself, you know, it's, it's, you're really trying to, you know, we're, we're all, we all get this one life and we're trying to grow in the, the life that mm -hmm. we have. Right. Um, the healing that's there and the, the the guidance that's there that helps you through this life because life is confusing and we stumble all the time i've stumbled so many times you know yeah um, exactly it's not like it just like happened and you know just because the because the white press writes some cool articles doesn't mean that you're like just okay now i'm a great person no you yeah. you're, you're this work in progress your whole yeah. life you don't know all the answers but you you know as a native person, like there is a certain um, way and way of being that you, that you inherently have access to that I, I think is such a grounding, powerful force. At least it, it has been in, certainly in my life. Well, clearly it has, because if Dakota Access Pipeline wasn't enough, 
Um, you, you've also <laughs> been involved in trying to stop Enbridge's Line 3 pipeline. And I'm wondering, can you, you know, give us a little bit of history about Line 3? What's the issue there? Yeah, sure. So Line 3 was actually kind of, for me, it was uh, kind of wrapped up in Dakota Access. So back when I had decided to... Um, so I worked at one law firm, um, had some had some issues there. We'll we'll, we'll leave it at that of, mm -hmm. of what I was uh, doing with my free time, which was you know organizing and writing. <laughs> I was writing a, a lot, um, and that was at a, at odds with some of the uh, some of mm -hmm. the the firm's um, positions. So then I moved to a second firm, um, and at the second firm, that was when I was really trying to like come on with honor the earth. And so I, I ended up accepting this position with Honor the Earth, um, and they wanted me to work on this this project that was being proposed called um, the the Sandpiper Project. And there was a little aspect of it uh, called the Alberta Clipper. The Alberta Clipper is actually the entry point of um, tar sands in this area for this specific project from Canada into the United States. So it's an international border crossing. And so I started doing some of this work out in D.C. where I was going to the State Department and, you know, lobbying on the Hill when it came to the Alberta Clipper and saying, you know, this is obviously not just expanding an existing line. This isn't maintenance. This is a brand new pipeline, right? You're not talking about a 200,000 or 300,000 barrel pipeline. You're talking about a 900,000 barrel per day pipeline. That's, a, wow. that's, not even, that's not even the same thing, right? They're not even the same ballpark. But what ended up happening is um, the Sandpiper project ended up being suspended by Enbridge. Like they they ran into all these blockades of um, legal battles and, you know, they, they couldn't necessarily prove their need and like all these different things happened, right? And so they took the money that they were going to put towards Sandpiper and they put it towards Dakota Access Pipeline. So Enbridge is actually a, almost a third owner in the Dakota Access Pipeline. Oh, wow. Huge, huge stake in it, right? And so I also felt obligation from that. Like that, you know, instead of screwing up my territory, they had decided that they were going to screw up my next door neighbors, right? My relatives right next door. And so that was an onus for going over there. But I knew this whole time when I was over in North Dakota that they had continued on with their other proposed project, which was this line three project, right? They were going to try to reboot the Sandpiper into a different, um, a different name, different, you know, different route. Um, and so the line three project is a proposed tar sands line that comes from the Alberta tar sands and, uh, passes down through, um, Saskatchewan, Manitoba into this little tip of North Dakota into Minnesota and terminates in Superior, Wisconsin. It's right at the, the base of the, of Lake Superior. Mm -hmm. If you've ever been to Lake Superior, it's, you know, the biggest freshwater lake in the world by, by volume or, uh, by surface area. Uh, there's one lake that's deeper, but it's it's huge. It's an ocean, right? Like it's a it's an ocean of a lake, mm -hmm. a beautiful place. But yes, they wanted to build this tar sands line, and it passes through the headwaters of the Mississippi River. It passes through dozens of wild rice beds. I mean, it's it's goes wow. through all these wetlands in Minnesota. Beautiful, beautiful territory. And I was like, oh my goodness, you know. So always kept that going in the back of my mind that this is winding its way through the regulatory process. We're going to keep doing public comments. We're going to keep like you know really good tabs on the regulatory review. Um, but when Dapple had been, you know, the ground fight had ended and they bulldozed the camps in February, um, I went back to DC, right. And, and was doing some healing, but also like, you know, was doing divestment work still of targeting the financiers, but also working on line three 
And then they started building line three around the state of Minnesota. So they started building it around and they started building in Canada and they started building it in Wisconsin, still not having permission in Minnesota to, to build the segment of the pipeline. Um, when that happened, I knew I had to move home because I was like, wow, they're really, they're really taking it to this level that they would build the pipeline around the state without having the permits. They're that confident that they're going to get this project. Incredible. So now I've been home for um, almost three years. Um, yeah. Wow. I guess two and a half years. Um, I've been on the ground in, in a camp that's about 200 yards off the proposed line three route, uh, for almost two years. Um, it'll be two years this summer that we've been outside, um, monitoring and, and following all construction activities of the Enbridge Corporation in our territory and doing all the things in between. So, you know, lobbying the governor, pushing for public education and interest and all these different things, um, campaigning against the banks that are funding it. The It's incredible how interconnected these different projects are. I mean, the general public can look at it and think, oh, it's just this or it's just that, but the ways in which they're connected or to even find out like in the situation of the Wet'suwet'en that you know, Coastal Gas Link, which is a subsidiary of, of TransCanada, that yep. the RCMP has their pension uh, directly invested in TransCanada. And it's, and so there's so many hidden connections that we're not even aware of. So you've got Enbridge, who is third owner of, of DAPL, and then it'll go on and do its own its own damage and so so where is it today what is the situation with line three today we've you've got a camp there um to monitor and campaign and lobby and and do all of these things but what's what's its current status um the current state of line three is in 2018 um i was actually on my way into sundance lodge and i got the news that they had the public utility commission here in minnesota had unanimously approved line three so five people unanimously approved to build one of the largest tar sands lines in North America. And this is under a liberal government, I would point out, right? Wow. So this is a liberal Democrat that's that's in the governor's seat right now. And his, his lieutenant governor is actually an Anishinaabe woman uh, from the state. Yeah, those are those are the people that are that are that have approved and are um, overseeing the line three process at this point. And we are still getting yes after yes after yes to building this project despite we managed to organize 68,000 public comments against the project wow so 94% of the comments that were submitted by the public were against the line 3 project hundreds of thousands of hours of testimony of packing public hearings of you know writing letters of doing every last thing you possibly could to um, engage with the process we are at the point now where they have their permits They've been appealed. They actually have amended. They lost on one aspect of not doing a, a spill model of what it would look like into Lake Superior. Okay. Um, so they added on that spill model and now their permits are again reinstated. And <sighs> we are currently at the state of today actually was the last public hearing for um, the water crossing permits. Water crossings like in Canada are separate. Okay. Um, so they're they're run by the Army Corps of Engineers and there's like a there's like the state to like the uh the pollution control agency and the DNR that has an input on those 
And so we're at that last stage. The the state is basically the last at the last part of giving line three its final permits on the ground. Um, there are pipe yards all over the state, which there have been for a number of years. That's typically one of their kind of pressure tactics. But they've started bringing in a, a great deal of equipment. Um, they've started bringing in all their pre-construction uh, materials. So like their worksite matting, their uh, major heavy equipment, like all the things that they're going to need to actually start uh, bulldozing through our wetlands and cutting down our forest. So that's where we're at. On the on the on the line three situation, and and you know t- even more disturbing, and and please correct me if I'm wrong. I try to follow what's happening in the U.S. Um, and what's happening with, with tribes in the environment, but um, Donald or Donald Trump's administration uh, is is basically relaxing environmental protections by letting companies know that if they can say that the reason why they couldn't comply with an environmental regulation um, is because of COVID-19, then they won't be enforced. I, correct me if I'm wrong. I think Alberta did the exact, almost the exact yeah. same thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's exactly where I was going saying, oh my goodness. And then we hear that. And then Alberta is doing that. And then we hear word that potentially Ontario will be doing that. And to actually use a pandemic as an excuse to just, op- you know, to get rid of environmental regulations, it, it seems beyond me that that could be possible. I mean, you think about the fact that these environmental regulations, as they stand today, are largely lobbied and written and influenced heavily by industry. Yeah. Right. So it is it is a process that 68,000 people from the public can submit comments against a project and that project moves forward with a unanimous vote. You know, I think that that speaks volumes about um, the so-called process and the um, incredible amount of bias that there is towards industry and against people. Um, And the incredible amount of influence that just as a small a handful of people in an industry that has so much resources at its disposal has been able to keep this kind of grip on um, governance systems for so long. Like we're at a, at, we've had the technology to move away from fossil fuels for a very long time. Yeah. Yet, yeah. You know, we're seeing something like I saw yesterday. I just gave a comment on it yesterday. It's there are banks in the United States, uh, Wells Fargo, Chase, City, and Bank of America who, because of COVID-19, their, their fracked gas, you know, clients are doing really poorly, right? Like we're talking really, really poorly, just like the tar sands have been struggling so badly. Yeah. But those banks' decision was instead of pulling their money from those industries and investing in renewables, they have actually announced they're going to seize those industries and run them themselves. So they're going to seize those companies and the banks are going to run the fracked gas industries oh, that their clients. Oh my goodness. So it's not even like, to me, something like that is, there's not even an a, a attempt at trying to separate the liability and the, the, the powers that be. Because before, you know, like the, you go to a banking meeting with a financier in my experience and they're, you know, you work on their climate sustainability policy. You talk about their consent policy when it comes to indigenous peoples their human rights standards that they say they follow, like all these things. Yeah. Typically we'll say, well, you know, where the accountability lies with our client 
and we receive our information from them. But, you know, we will take into consideration your lawsuits you presented, the, the documentation that you've mm-hmm. given us, things like that. Right. Mm-hmm. But now we're but now they're actually just saying, you know what, we're actually just going to buy. The, we're just going to take the industry. And we're going to run it ourselves. So, you know, <laughs> where is the how can you say that you have a climate policy if your policy is in place, but you're actually running the fracked gas and you know yeah. what I mean? Like that just doesn't. Yeah. Well, it's like Trudeau saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to do all this environmental thing. Environmental is going to be my policy and respecting native rights. And I'm just going to buy a pipeline, you know, against the will of people without social license, all these things that he um, promoted. And to me, all of these things are very direct conflict of interest and not even just apparent, but actual conflicts of interest, financial conflicts of interest, personal conflicts of interest. And it seems like for every for every success we have, because, you know, we have been able um, to to stop projects. They can be smaller projects, they can be parts of projects, they can be permits. I mean, we also have to celebrate all of the, the, the wins we have, but essentially you've got this dying industry that's absolutely desperate because this whole capitalist society has been set up based on these fossil fuel barons and, you know, owning media and having all of this industry influence on governments and so on and so forth and it just kind of perpetuates in a circle so you've got this dying industry and instead of saying hey i'm not going to be a typewriter company anymore i'm going to invest in computers um instead of going and saying well look we could invest in green energy and make money on that like let's get in early on this because we know it's a non-renewable energy like it's the industry is going to die someday instead they're desperately holding on to it and i mean and i'm not just picking on the united states because if you look at alberta i mean that's probably one of the worst case scenarios we were working so hard against the tech mine which was going to be another massive tar sands and you know tech mine decides not to go ahead it wasn't going to be economically viable anyway but you know blames canada's climate policy And, you know, you've got the premier of Alberta doing a press conference blaming Alberta's economic woes, not on his lack of vision or, you know, putting all of his eggs in the fossil fuel basket, but saying Leonardo DiCaprio, Jane Fonda, David Suzuki and Pam Palmiter are the reason why we have lost tech minds because they are urban militants and zealots. And, you know, to just really kind of vilify some people who are also wanting to protect the planet and the oil workers, by the way, because we've all said we should be retraining and supporting all of these oil workers. And so he retreats into his cave and comes out a few weeks later during a pandemic and says, surprise, we're going to reinvigorate the Keystone XL pipeline and just put billions into that. I mean, it almost seems like a movie that can't be true that it's so far-fetched you couldn't you couldn't imagine a premier saying well we're going to fire all the education workers in exchange for 7000 pipeline workers yeah and i mean i think <laughs> you also see like this um i actually i wrote a, i wrote about this just because it was so bad when it came <laughs> to the rail blockades and the infrastructure blockades in solidarity with what soatin mm-hmm. the amount of vitriol and hatred and racism that definitely already existed, but was just 
on full display mm-hmm. um, of Canadians, quote unquote, versus First Nations. Um, when in reality, you know, a lot of the people that are working in those mines are the First Nations that are around those areas. Yeah. Right. Like those industries are killing and hurting our people. And we have just as few options as everybody else. Yeah. It's just that there are deeply held values that our people hold at a much higher rate than the average public. Right. Like that when it comes down to it, we were willing to not have the good paying job and willing to protect the lake or protect the river or protect, you know, whatever it happens to be, protect Mm -hmm. the salmon, protect the wild rice over the, you know, salary job. Like that's, that's where the, the crux of it lies. Yeah. And that, you know, our values guide us to look seven generations ahead. And it's not to say that we're not in the same boat and that we're not living in the same society as everyone else, but we have values that don't fundamentally align um, for a lot of us, especially those of us who are still deeply tied to our people, who are still deeply tied to our values that we've been passed on by our ancestors. You know, I think to see the, you know, the, the tendency of governments and these really high level people to kind of act like they're almost like they like they're victims somehow yeah it's yeah. like it's it, it is a movie you know you've got like the prime minister of canada acting like you know that he has to make this really difficult decision and buy a pipeline <laughs> and then you've got like you know the the provincial over in alberta acting like you know it's it's these activists and these celebrities and that's yeah. who's taking our jobs from us. No, what's taking yeah. our jobs from you is that you're part of a dying industry and yeah. the cost of tar sands is trading at less than $5 a barrel. Like that's, what's the issue here. Yeah, like you chose to double down and destroy your beautiful, beautiful territory and try to expand the mine versus trying to transition away from it and investing massive amounts of money into cleaning it up. Right? Like that's, Whenever I hear the argument about how, like, I'm opposed to jobs and I'm opposed to economic <laughs> development, there is so many jobs that are to be had for, let's see, decommissioning line three. That in and of itself would employ so many people yes. in the local area, um, you know, and also the other pipelines that are leaking and spilling into our environment constantly. You know what I mean? Like, there is a yeah. whole process that needs to happen to actually transition. And yes, we say the terms just transition. I think that there is a real way to do that, right? Yeah, of course. Um, but it requires governments to invest in people and not, a, and not to engage in corporate welfare, which is what they largely do. Well, and you've raised probably the most important point, because I get that too. You know, how dare you you know, want to take away away jobs from workers. It's like, oh, I I don't want to take away jobs from them. I want them to have clean jobs where they're not at risk of having cancer or contributing to the destruction of the earth. And those jobs can exist. If we we literally stopped subsidizing all of these corporations and we stopped giving them all of these big tax breaks and we transferred that into other jobs, clean jobs, transitional jobs, new technology, you know, renewable energy, retraining, re-education, you know, basic income, all these kinds of things. I mean, this pandemic has showed us if we need the money, all these countries have the money. I mean, 
billions of dollars boom out of the air. So you mean to tell me we couldn't provide water in tribes or First Nations for all these decades? You mean to tell me you couldn't have provided a basic living income for people so that they wouldn't have to draw on social supports? I mean, everything about our society not only doesn't make moral sense or social justice sense, but it doesn't even make economic sense. And I think all of the work that Indigenous peoples are doing in resistance, I, I think if we can really show people that this isn't, that this is far from taking away, that this is really about supporting and giving back in a healthy and safe way so that everybody can support themselves. I mean, it really takes the power away from, from governments. And, and, and I, you know, I can't thank you enough for what you're doing. And we now have the added complexity of this pandemic on us where we're not allowed outside, we're not allowed to gather in person, but for some reason in some provinces and states and countries, the extractive industry is allowed to continue operating its man camps, which are dangerous to native women in terms of sexualized violence and, and criminality on that side of things, but just in terms of the spread of uh, a virus and the, the burden on health resources. I mean, what kind of advice do you have for, you know, tribes in the U.S. or First Nations in Canada who are really busy trying to protect their communities? Also keep an eye on all of the development that continues on our territories. Like, what can we do under this kind of circumstance? I think that, um, you know, something that's been really powerful during this this time is seeing in particular, our people, Indigenous people, returning to a lot of the traditional practices and ways that, that keep us ourselves, right? So I've, I've been seeing a lot of, you know, people focusing on traditional foods and hunting and fishing and mm -hmm. things that you can still do while observing social distancing, but healing ourselves in a real way like i think mm -hmm. that uh, a lot of society generally is being confronted with that right now like they're being confronted with the fact that almost their entire existence is entirely framed in consumerism and extraction right mm -hmm. like that's that's what that's what the narrative largely of society of the of the mainstream society is and so native people i think there's this really powerful um attention and, and, and chance at reflection of what's truly important. So, you know, maybe the large scale sugar bush is being canceled right now, or it has been for a lot of different uh, people that I know in this, in this, in this particular territory. Um, but we're still doing little sugar bushes, right? So like, I've talked to a lot of different people who are running them out of their backyards, who are um, still out in the woods, still out in the forest, doing those things in small groups of people. Um, because that's not only healing and healthy, it's you're creating food. You're actually creating yeah. medicine from trees, right? You're creating medicine that you can wipe down and leave at an elder's doorstep or, or whatever it happens to be. Or you can, you know, use your skills of sewing and sew masks yeah. for healthcare providers. You can uh, begin all your, some, all your spring planting, right? And, and really focus on that and think about like, you know, Maybe I don't even have gardening skills yet, but what do I do in terms of, you know, this, this pandemic has showed me that, like, if I don't have access to a grocery store, I'm completely screwed. There's, I think there's that. But then when it comes to these infrastructure projects, I, you know, 
it's it's kind of a mixture that I've observed so far because I think a lot of us are trying to figure out what we do. It's calling into light like that. You know, the environmental movement largely um, focuses a great deal of energy on electoral politics and on um, quote unquote demonstrations, so urban demonstrations. Um, and in my assessment, not nearly enough uh, focus on the land. And I, I think I'm seeing that in, in so many people asking me more so than they usually do about how do we help? How do we help? How do we help? Because they know yeah. that all these industries are using COVID in a way to continue on with their activities while we can't, while our, the front lines are, are in the same situation as everyone else, right? So I think they're realizing okay. that they depend very heavily on us um, to, to hold that front line. I think for those of us that are holding front lines, I mean, I, I've seen, you know, um, live streamers showing the, the companies violating these, these uh, social distancing rules that, you know, I, I think there's, you know, efforts to try to expose, like, you know, for these governors and these elected officials that are leading these um, provinces or states you know, what's your priority here? Like, is your priority really public health or is your priority public health, but let the bad guys continue to do things that actually um, harm our environment that we are realizing that we're actually pretty dependent on, right? Like the pandemic is forcing us to realize how dependent on the environment that we really are. Um, So I think the, you know, the the efforts to continue to um, expose that is important. Right. Working with lawyers, you know, if, if possible to, uh, you know, draft complaints or whatever it is or letters or, you know, here's this major health concern I have about the influx of 4,000 workers into our rural area, mm-hmm. you know, not only on the, the usual violence and drugs and trafficking that comes with them, but also just in the straight sense of how is it that you've shut down the borders to other people and you're forcing them to mandatorily quarantine, but you're not doing the same when it comes to man camps of people building an infrastructure project. You know what I mean? Like, why are there exceptions for that? I think there's an opportunity for the public to really uh, garner a lot of support um, and question that, right? Like, it, it's something mm-hmm. that as the death tolls and all those things, like we're seeing that all of the news, right? It's really hard to see that every day. And it's hard to see healthcare workers that look like they're 60 when they're 20 you know like that's not an easy thing yeah. to see. it's it's really really hard and it's you feel at least i feel so I, I think it's really spiritually hard um to see refrigerated trucks pulling up behind hospitals and we can't even bury our people and we can't have funerals and we can't have weddings and we can't mm-hmm. watch people walk across the stage for graduation like these these moments are being taken from us but what what can we do in that time you know because we also have to try to figure out like how are we going to come out of this together in, in a better yeah. way than we were before i think we have an opportunity to do that and that's through a, a lot of the things that are already happening through mutual aid through sharing food with each other through trying to take care of our elders trying to take care of our families through visiting over skype and you know all the all the different tools that we have at our fingertips mm-hmm. talking with people more than we have before but also like protecting our environment right like that it really I hope is becoming more apparent to, to more people in a, in a, in a real way, just how important it is to have food to eat and, and water to drink, you know, and that it shouldn't always be left on the, on the shoulders of frontliners who 
you know, put our bodies in front of machines and face jail and prison. And, you know, if we're in other parts of the world, face assassination and death. Mm -hmm. That is, that's something I hope that at least the environmental movement grapples with, but I hope more of society also begins to look at. Yeah, just literally how valuable our people are, how valuable our frontliners are, and and just how bad this system is that we live under, that, you know, this pandemic shows just how everything doesn't work the way it's been set up, that it's, you know, with the pandemic, we've only been home for a month or so, depending on where you live, you know, it could be a month, it could be six weeks, and, you know, everything has stopped, people are in need of food, people are in need of health care, people don't, can't afford health care, that the system that people have been working in and thinking that, you know, if I just go to school, get an education, get a job, get a house, like everything is going to work, that the system that we're forced to navigate in just simply isn't working, that the control that the extractive industry has over politicians and banking and economics, all of that can come crashing down in a heartbeat. Whereas the planet, if we take care of it, is always here. The people, if we take care of one another, is always here. And the plants and the animals and all the food we rely on, I mean, that's life. That's actual the basics of life. And so I'm so thankful for everything that you do, Tara. Um, Everything that you do, everything that you help to do, everyone that else that you lift up, everyone that you help educate, um, all of us making our mistakes together, learning together, doing whatever we can in whatever forum there is. And, and, you know, protecting ourselves first and foremost, defending our territories, but helping to educate other people that this is, you know, there's a future where there's life and there's a future where there isn't one. And we need to get off that track of the one that just has climate change and devastating climate change and get back to the one which is about social justice and earth justice. And thank you for everything that you you are doing and i hope that someday i actually get to meet you in person (laughs) once the pandemic is over and we can kind of collaborate behind the scenes and see where we go next yeah no i really i i really appreciate it um thank you for your kind words it's uh yeah i i would say uh on a on a personal note that it's it's been I come from a town of like, I, I actually grew up in a, in a, a kind of almost like a village setting in, in a place called Rainier. It's only like 200 people. Um, and, you know, went to school in a, in a larger town, but it's the, the, I guess, public speaking and the, all those things are even now as an adult are still pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. It's always really strange for me. And I'm always like, Ugh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I think that's a lot of us too, right? Like, so not a lot of native native folks are pretty quiet folks. Um, but yeah, I really, really deeply appreciate the work. And I also, I I have to say, it gives me so much um, strength and hope that I see so many native women, in particular, mm-hmm. um, coming into that. That's to me. That's what I don't know more like that's what really sat with me was not just these beautiful demonstrations, which I, you know, those were badass, right? Like I was like, this is amazing. 
Um, this is so amazing. Like they're in Mall of America in Minnesota. And yeah. All these native people. Like it's so incredible. But it was also like these native women, right? And like mm-hmm. this, they're pushing the Harper administration who I had to like, you know, learn a lot about and then learn about, you know, at the same time I'm in law school. So I'm learning about navigable water and like all these things and, and, and seeing native women um, who have this, you know, the, these deep connections already as life givers. Like that gives me so much encouragement and um, inspiration and, and also seeing, and, and we talked about this right before we started, which was, you know, the, seeing our youth, oh, yeah. these native youth, like coming forward and um, not only doing like what I perceive, like the thing that really like I love is like seeing that, like there's so many native youth that are not just coming at it in the traditional advocacy streams of we're going to march and we're going to hold signs and we're going to put our fists up and we're going to take selfies and we're going to do all those things. No, it's not just that. We're also going to actually like physically blockade like the legislature and we're going to go out into like the actual land and we're going to stand with the people and we're going to stand across the bridge and we're going to do, you know what I mean? Like all real risks because like they're, they're, they're walking their walk. Right. And they're, they're not just talking their talk, they're walking their walk. But then the, the other side that really, really gives me so much hope is seeing all these youth come together too and 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 have them not only asking questions but just going out there and doing it figuring out and and fumbling our way in some instances fumbling their way through how do i hunt how do i fish how do i tan hives how do i do these things because this is like the real um decolonization that needs to happen decolonization is not just a word it is not just a slogan it is not something that you automatically have by being a native person right like there's actual work behind it yes you have beauty automatically in my assessment of being by being just a a native person that has those those deep held wisdoms and resilience inside of yourself but it's not easy right it's not an easy thing and we're not going to achieve change comfortably we're not going to um heal our our way all the way back to the to where we want to be without making real sacrifice um and that gives me so so much hope oh exactly all all of it everything you just said it's when you can look and see what the youth are doing then it gives you some sense of we have a future and we have a strong future not just a you know barely surviving future but you know, if if this is the path of the future that the youth are, you know, setting out on, then, then, you know, we're good. Then this is like all the hope and fire that I need to keep continuing what I'm doing and, and all of our communities. And, and I agree with you, you know, change isn't comfortable. No social <laughs> justice that we've ever achieved in history has ever come, have been given to us <laughs> or, you know, was comfortable it, it it requires resistance and pressure and activism and discomfort and you know a change in uh, power there has to be a transitional you know change in power change in wealth and, and land back and all of these things and our lives back you know our sovereignty back and our self-determination so Thank you for helping to lead the way and helping to inspire youth and everyone else. And thank you to the youth for inspiring us who have been in it for a while and need that inspiration because it does become, you know, a a bit discouraging sometimes. But 
I have nothing but hope from after talking to you, Tara. And before I let you go, um, I know I'm going to get asked by activists and allies and our people, are there any specific websites that we can go to to support any of these initiatives? Oh, yeah. Um, I would say, so I'll give a shout out to, to the work that I'm also, that I'm personally doing, but also to a few others that I know are doing really, really great work. Um, so here, the fight um, in Minnesota, in northern Minnesota, is uh, please visit stopline3.org. Uh, okay. Stopline3.org. Um, it hasn't, we're, we're about to do a, a whole series of updates on it. It's kind of more like a regulatory review update situation, but um, mm -hmm. there is direct action stuff posted there sometimes. And there's also a really great map that shows you where line three is exactly um, okay. to get that sense. Um, I'm part of the GNU Collective, G-I-N-I-W. Um, GNU is the golden eagle that lives between the world of the spirits and the, the world that we exist in in this plane. So kind of like the scouts, right? Like that was what we were thinking when, when we came together. Um, so GNU Collective has a Facebook, we have a Instagram and a Twitter too, but they're, we're, we're pretty, pretty small scale, but please follow us there. Um, and then, uh, for the, for the other folks that are out, I know that are doing amazing work, please follow, um, the tiny house warriors, yes. um, out in BC, please follow, um, what Soatin. there's a couple different, um, websites that, that, that are engaged in that struggle, but, um, I know for sure. Uh, the Indigenous Youth for Wet'suwet'en is a new one that's just popped yep. up. Um, please follow the Beaver Hills Warriors. They are super badass youth that are doing great, amazing things. Um, please follow the Indian, or sorry, the Indigenous Climate Action. Um, I know she's, Ariel's doing awesome work. She's actually mm -hmm. one of the folks that's from the source. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think... I think there's a, a lot of hope to be had out there um, oh, yeah. for a lot yeah, of different definitely. groups and a lot of different places across Turtle Island. And, and yeah. for those people who have the time uh, right now and who, who, you know, have the resources, this is a, this is a perfect time to, you know, find ways in which, which you can help. And there's lots of different ways in which people can help. And, you know, you, the websites that you listed, Oh my goodness! There's so many amazing warriors all supporting these things, and and it really is about the support that we get from other, you know, tribal and First Nations, but also our allies, our social justice allies, and Earth justice allies, and international allies. Like every single person's support helps. So thank you for listing those. I'll make sure to post them in my description box, along with the other two you were mentioning for the Wet'suwet'en, the Unistoten and Gidimden uh, web websites yep. there. Yep, because they have like supporter toolkits and and their websites and their supporter toolkits, which is great. I mean, you can apply that supporter toolkit across the board to people like, you know, Tiny House Warriors and, and lots of others. So thank you so much for actually doing this extended interview. I think it's amazing. I think so many people are going to learn uh, from it. And thank you to all my listeners for tuning into my show. And I, I hope you learned a lot from Tara. I mean, I know I did. I'm not just inspired by her, but I learned a lot from her. And what I'll do is uh, post a link to all these organizations that Tara referred to so that you can find ways to support the cause. And if you like this episode, please consider supporting it by liking it and commenting on it and sharing it with all of your social justice ally friends. And let me know what other podcast topics you'd like me to cover, especially during this pandemic and different ways in which we can support each other. 
This podcast is currently hosted on SoundCloud, but it's also available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn is Pam Palmeter. I am not on TikTok because I can't dance. So, so <laughs> far, not on TikTok. And you can subscribe to my videos on YouTube, where I also try to talk about the difficult political and legal issues facing um, all of our Native brothers and sisters all over Turtle Island. And if you want to access all of this information in one place, you can check out my website at www.pampometer.com. Until next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliag. Well,